Listen as Dr. Spiro Catalan, Dr. Reem Mustafa, and Lena Russell discuss issues with availability of testing and treatment for TTP. This podcast is part of a comprehensive educational resource designed by leading experts for the global community to help you stay abreast of the evolving science and latest clinical advancements in thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Hello, everyone. My name is Reem Mustafa, and one of the nephrologists at the University of Kansas Medical Center, and I'm joined here today by Dr. Lene Russell, an intensivist from the University of Copenhagen Hospital in Denmark, and Dr. Sparrow Catland, a hematologist from the Ohio State University. And we would like to discuss a really important topic about when to suspect TTP and what should you do when you suspect TTP. Dr. Russell and Dr. Catland, what are your thoughts about that? Well, I think it's interesting that both Dr. Ralph and I would come at this from a slightly different perspective, her being an intensivist uh, and myself being a hematologist. But I think in both situations, TTP can show up clinically. And the hardest part about diagnosing TTP is sometimes just thinking about it. When should you be thinking about it? With the thrombocytopenia, with that mechanical hemolysis, the fragmented cells in the peripheral blood, the schistocytes, and most importantly, without any other explanation, you really need to think about the possibility of the diagnosis of TTP. I think as an ICU physician that uh, the most common patient we will see with fever and uh, organ dysfunction and thrombocytopenia will be patients with sepsis. And uh, the most common reason for not thinking and testing for TTP is simply that we get the diagnosis wrong. We will think about DIC, we will think about uh, sepsis, we will think about infections, and there will be lots of other thoughts in our head before we get to contacting the hematologist and start discussing TTP. No, Lynn, I think you're exactly right. I mean, the, the diagnosis shouldn't start, or the differential should not start with TTP, but there's obviously a lot of other things that are more common that will give you thrombocytopenia and fragmented cells. The key here being without any other explanation. So the sepsis, um, acute renal failure of other etiologies, those things should be considered. But when they don't fit clinically very quickly, you need to move down the differential and, and consider the diagnosis of TTP, I think. So that's great and, and gives us an idea kind of what are the patient, typical patient that we should suspect TTP in. Let's say now we have a patient that we're suspecting TTP. Um, what should be the the next steps um, in their diagnostic and management journey? Yeah, I think what should really get your attention is the level of thrombocytopenia, and we'll talk about the severity of renal injury. With immune-mediated TTP that's mediated by severely deficient datum TS13 activity, where plasma exchange needs to be urgently started, really is, is, is defined by a very low platelet count and a near normal or just slightly abnormal renal function. Complete renal failure is quite rare in immune-mediated TTP. So a lower platelet count, less severe renal injury really is where you should think about it. And it's really the basis for a lot of these prediction models, the plasmic score and the French TTP prediction score, which will fairly accurately predict the likelihood of severely deficient atom TS13 activity 
based on regularly available and routinely available clinical parameters to help your decision making. But, but am I correct that the, uh, uh, quite often in the early stages, we won't see the fragmented red blood cells? You know, it, it depends when they present. You're, I, I have seen cases with fairly fulminant TTP without clearly apparent fragmented cells, which is a bit unique, but it can certainly happen. But we do know patients with a prior history of TTP can show up subacutely, if you will. They may have a higher platelet count initially and a less significant elevation of the LDH based upon their earlier awareness of the disease as they've had it before. But that will usually tip off physicians as well, that they've had a history of TTP and the potential for a relapsed event. So I'm glad you mentioned uh, Adam TS13 as a really, in my view, important part of the diagnostic journey for these patients. Um, it is also uh, kind of key to distinguish and, and highlight that there is potentially uh, either different access to the availability of Adam TS13, but more likely that different institution, some will run it locally and you'll have the results pretty quickly and um, many will actually have to send the test out. So how can we use that and distinguish between what do you do? Do we have to wait for the results to come back? How do we um, use that as, as part of our management? I, I think you have to really use the Adam TS13 testing uh, very much like the HIT testing, where you don't wait for the result to initiate treatment. And the diagnosis of TTP remains a clinical diagnosis that's confirmed by the severely deficient Adam TS13 activity. So if you suspect uh, TTP as a diagnosis and you're going to send out the Adam TS13 activity, you don't want to wait for the answer. You want to initiate empirically plasma exchange therapy, steroids even, as a part of your clinical suspicion for TTP. Then use that Adam TS13 activity when it returns, whether it's one or two days or four or five days, to confirm that diagnosis and confirm your path or to cause you in the context of their response to plasma exchange therapy to maybe rethink their TMA diagnosis as not being immune-mediated TTP if you get a normal level of the Adam TS13 activity. How can we um, kind of incorporate? We now have newer treatments uh, like caplicizumab. Um, how can that be um, used? Should we be giving it to all patients? Should we be actually using it only in a specific group of patients? And can we use specific prediction models or Adams TS13 levels to guide that? We do need to have an ADM TS13 test to stop uh, Kapla. Is that not correct, Dr. Catalan? You know, it, with, the, with the right clinical suspicion, it's very reasonable to start caplicizumab with steroids and with plasma exchange therapy. And I think that's the clinical suspicion that might be confirmed by these plasmic score or the French uh, prediction model that tells you the greater likelihood of Adam's Despite, But deficiency. if the test is not available. You, well, certainly, yeah, yeah. These are all part of the discussions, obviously, of the uh, ISTH guidelines. And, and without access to the Adam TS13 testing as in-house or send-out, uh, it's not recommended that caplicizumab be used because you can't confirm the diagnosis as well as monitor when it's safe to stop the caplicizumab. So I think it certainly goes hand-in-hand hand with the caplicizumab therapy. You need both together. And maybe that could guide decisions for some centers to actually transfer patients to centers with uh, experience and availability of these modalities, whether testing or treatment 
as they see needed. Yeah, I think so. I think you go back to what Lenny said very initially about other causes of thrombocytopenia. And what you really don't want is capocizumab, which impairs what you want to do, impair this VWF function binding to platelets, which can lead to a bleeding, potential for bleeding complications. So when the right patient gets capocizumab, it's a very safe and effective drug. When the wrong patient gets capocizumab, where there's not a high clinical suspicion or likelihood, you could have significant bleeding complications potentially. It will be very interesting to see what happens uh, now out of the large trials if CapLab becomes more widespread, because like you say, there's a risk of bleeding complications. And uh, if we have to wait, or you might be in a place where you have to wait four to seven days to get the ADMT certain result, we might start to uh, see effects that was not seen in the randomized trials. It would be very interesting. No, I agree. I agree. It's the real-time application of the treatment in the real world. Well, um, thank you very much, Dr. Catalan and Dr. Russell. This was a very informative and, and really interesting discussion. I do think the fact that we have capocizumab now as an option for treatment for these patients is a very exciting time. And we all look forward to see how it's going to be used and implemented and to see the real-life, long-term effects um, when using it with patients. Check back for more podcasts on thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. Additional education on TTP is available on academy.isth.org.